0: Trust and obey. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized?' Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. In my New King James Bible, these passages are marked as Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. However, in some Bibles, verse 37 is missing. According to the best textual critics, Acts 8.37 is an interpolation. What does that last sentence mean? In our special study today, we want to consider that and its implications on the Christian faith. When you hold in your hands an English Bible, for example, the New King James Version, which is the translation we have been using in this study in Acts, what are you holding? A Christian might say, I am holding the inspired Word of God. In a very real sense, that would be true. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, and as the inspired Word of God, its production was overseen by the Holy Spirit, and it is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. But it's more complicated, and those complications need to be understood. First, you are holding something that was typeset and printed by a publishing house, probably rather recently. Here's a question for you to consider. Was the typesetting and printing process inspired and overseen by the Holy Spirit so as to be inerrant, infallible, and authoritative? I imagine all listeners would quickly answer, no. The typesetting and printing of my English Bible was the work of uninspired men, and as such it may very well contain errors, what we would call, in modern jargon, typos. All right, well, what if we move one step back in the process and ask about the translation? were the translators of the New King James Version, inspired and overseen by the Holy Spirit, so as to be inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Again, I think most listeners would quickly respond with a strong no. The New King James Version translators were uninspired men who were capable of making mistakes— And I think most careful Bible students who read the New King James Version would say that they did make mistakes and errors in judgment that are reflected in the quality of their work. Then let's take one more step backward in the process. Before the translation process, there was the transmission process, in which scribes made handwritten copies of the original Hebrew and Greek writings that make up our Bibles— Were these scribes inspired and overseen by the Holy Spirit so as to be inerrant, infallible, and authoritative? Perhaps at this point, less of our readers would have a strong opinion, but the answer must be, again, a resounding no. It must be because of the more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that exist today and are known to scholars, no two are exactly alike. There are always some differences, and some scholars number these differences or variants as high as 400,000. We're going to say more about that in just a moment, but for now, we must acknowledge that the scribes who produced the manuscript copies were uninspired men who did make mistakes. Now take one step further back the original documents written by the apostles and prophets, were these men inspired and overseen by the Holy Spirit so that their production was inerrant, infallible, and authoritative? Yes, absolutely. There were no errors, no contradictions, no real problems in the originals except those that might be caused by ignorance on the part of the readers. So yes, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And as the inspired Word of God, its production was overseen by the Holy Spirit, and it is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative, what we hold in our hands with our New King James Version, or some other modern translation, is the product of an effort by uninspired, fallible, and Errant men through many centuries to make the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God available to us, modern English speakers 2,000 years removed from the youngest texts of Scripture. Error and problems may and do occur at any point in the process of uninspired human work. Let's use the typesetting and printing stage as an example. In 1631, one edition of the King James Version included a very serious and dramatic error in typesetting. The printers accidentally omitted the word not from Exodus 20, verse 14, causing the passage to read, Thou shalt commit adultery. This came to be known as the Wicked Bible all would agree this was a major problem. There is a significant difference between thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt commit adultery. If the latter version had been accepted, the implications on Christian ethics, morality, and theology would have been immeasurable. However, this misprint did not cause any disruption in the Christian faith or schism in the church. Now, how was that possible? As serious a mistake as it was, it was easily identified and quickly dismissed. And the pure original was not lost because of it. There are several reasons for this. First, in spite of the fact that more than 1,000 copies of the Wicked Bible were disseminated to the public, there were millions of Bibles that did not include the misprint. Furthermore, no Bible printed before 1631 included it, Furthermore, no Bible outside the English language included it. Furthermore, the reading was cumbersome and seemed out of sorts with the flow of the text. It was odd to read, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet. Furthermore, the reading was contrary to the clear teaching of the rest of sacred Scripture— If that reading was right, then other parts of the Bible were wrong. All of these issues helped people identify the typographical error and put it away so that it would not trouble believing people who wanted to understand God's Word ever again. We could tell a similar story with the process of translation. Over the years, English Bible translators have very frequently reviewed and revised their translation work because... Further reflection revealed room for improvement. However, while problems in typesetting and translation are real problems that need to be resolved, surely we would all agree that they do not undermine the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of the Scripture, because those lofty claims do not belong to a certain typeset or translation. They belong to the original writings of the Apostles and Prophets. Realizing this will help us now come to the stage of transmission. In the production of Bible manuscripts, which took place from the time the first book of the Bible was written, over 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus, all the way to the invention of the printing press, a little over 1,400 years after the birth of Jesus, extreme efforts were made to preserve the text of sacred scripture precisely. The scribes were either professionals, hired because of their skill in the craft of hand-copying a document, or dedicated believers, who were convinced that the accuracy of their work was a matter of eternal life or death. Consider this account of the Jewish scribal process. Quote, In making copies of Hebrew manuscripts, which are the precious heritage of the church today, the Jewish scribes exercised the greatest possible care even to the point of superstition, counting not only the words but every letter, noting how many times each particular letter occurred and destroying at once the sheet on which a mistake was detected in their anxiety to avoid the introduction of the least error into the sacred scripture which they prized so highly and held in such reverent awe. Moreover, each new copy had to be made from an approved manuscript, written with a special kind of ink, upon sheets made from the skin of a clean animal. The writers also had to pronounce aloud each word before writing it, and on no account was a single word to be written from memory. They were to reverently wipe their pen before writing the name of God in any form, and to wash their whole bodies before writing Yahweh, lest the holy name should be tainted even in the writing. The new copy was then carefully examined with the original almost immediately, and it is said that if only one incorrect letter was discovered, the whole copy was destroyed. It is recorded how one reverent rabbi solemnly warned a scribe thus, "'Take heed how thou doest thy work, for thy work is the work of heaven.' Lest thou drop or add a letter of the manuscript, and so become a destroyer of the world. So the copyists were concerned with the integrity of their work, but so were the typesetters who produced the wicked Bible. Their mistake did not destroy the world, but it did bankrupt their printing business. To err is human. Mistakes happen in human endeavors, and even with all the efforts to avoid them, They happened from time to time in the scribal transmission process. Earlier, we mentioned how some scholars number the variants in New Testament manuscripts as high as 400,000. It is important to note that many dispute the accuracy of that number. It's a little bit disingenuous. But even still, the majority of those variants are of minor importance. They're matters like punctuation, word order, insignificant phrasing differences, repetition of words or phrases, uh, misspellings, phrases from one part of the Bible accidentally being inserted into another, words or phrases or lines accidentally being skipped, and differences over what to call a place or a person. Those are very minor, and their impact on the text, even if no good resolution could be established, one choice over another would have virtually no impact on the ethics, morality, or theology of Christianity. The science of identifying and sorting through these variants is called textual criticism, and responsible scholarly textual critics would not call the majority of these variants problem passages because they are easily accounted for as simple typos, to use the modern term. When these are set aside, the agreement between the more than 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, as well as 9,000 manuscripts in other languages, 36,000 quotations in the early church fathers, and 2,000 quotations in lectionary readings, comes to more than 99%. To put it another way, the questionable or problem texts represent less than one-half of one percent of the New Testament, That is essentially zero. But it is not quite zero. There are some problem texts. These texts are called interpolations. That refers to passages that are present in some manuscripts and have been included in some English Bible translations, but according to the best textual scholars, they were not a part of the original, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative writings. James E. Smith reports that these problem passages come out to about 400 words, or 40 lines, in our English Bibles. If this is right, then when we find an English Bible that does not include these words, or phrases, or lines, or sections, we should not protest that the publishers or translators have removed something from the Bible— Instead, they have opted to follow manuscripts that do not include those words or phrases or lines or sections because they determined that they were added to the Bible later. And we would all agree that it is no better to add to the Bible than it is to take away from it. But really the question that most of us will be asking here is how do the textual critics make that determination that these words or phrases or lines or sections are interpolations? Or they do so by a very similar process to the one we used to identify the problem in the Wicked Bible. First, they ask, what do the majority of manuscripts say? Second, they ask, what do the oldest manuscripts say? Third, they ask, is this reading confined to a particular translation, or does something like it appear in multiple translations or languages? Fourth, they ask, is this reading cumbersome? and out of sorts with the flow of the text, would the passages make more sense without it? Finally, they ask, does this reading harmonize with the clear teaching of other scriptures, or does it create an unnecessary problem in the Bible as a whole? The late Dr. Norman Geisler, who was a very conservative scholar and an ardent defender of biblical inerrancy, gave this list, in order of priority, for evaluating between texts to identify interpolations which demonstrate several other issues that the scholars consider. Number one, the older reading is to be preferred. Number two, the more difficult reading is to be preferred. Number three, the shorter reading is to be preferred. Number four, the reading that best explains the variance is to be preferred. Number five. The reading with the widest geographical support is to be preferred. Number six, the reading that most conforms to the style and diction of the author is to be preferred. Number seven, the reading that reflects no doctrinal bias is to be preferred. To learn more about these criteria and how their tests are applied we direct listeners to A General Introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler and William Nex, which discusses this subject at great length. There are several texts that may be familiar to us which modern textual critics have determined are interpolations. Sometimes that may be difficult to accept, and sometimes we may discover that there is serious debate and the passages are worthy of defense, even when they are highly criticized. There are a few general truths I would offer here that I hope give you comfort as a Christian, while at the same time recognizing the reality and the complexity of this issue. First, of all the interpretive or allegedly interpretive passages, none seriously impacts the teaching of the Christian faith. There are no issues as serious as the typo in the Wicked Bible, and if all these passages were removed from our English Bibles, we would lose no Christian doctrine because the things that are taught in them are taught elsewhere in many other passages very clearly. Second, interpolations do not represent any nefarious plot to change the Bible. They are accidents that can easily be explained and overcome. Most of the time, they represent marginal notes that were at first included by a copyist separate from the text for the purpose of clarification, or to fill in something that seemed to be lacking, and at some point were accidentally assimilated into the text in uh, later manuscripts. So, the existence of interpolations does not justify any kind of conspiracy theory to undermine the integrity of the Bible. Third, because interpolations properly interpreted do not include anything doctrinally unique, One does not need to fear for the souls of those who might have lived and died regarding these passages as truly representing the Word of God and treating them as such before discoveries in manuscripts uh, cleared the matter up and shed new light on the subject. No theology was harmed in the working out of these issues. For our purposes, I want to consider the case of Acts 8.37 in light of all that we have thus far observed. Acts 8.37, by way of reminder, reads as follows in the New King James Version. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This appears as an answer to the eunuch's question, What hinders me from being baptized? And offers some preliminary to Philip and the eunuch stopping the chariot and entering the water for the baptism. Here are the textual issues with the passage as succinctly stated in the footnote of the New King James Version. The verse is not present in the NU text, that is, the Nessel Allen United Bible Society's text, the oldest Greek manuscripts from the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, which date to the 4th and 5th centuries. Nor is it present in the majority text, that is, the largest number of surviving manuscripts which were produced by the Eastern or Byzantine part of the Roman Empire. It is, however, present in the Western text and the Latin translations. There's more to say, and we will say it in just a moment, but this is the issue. Some manuscripts have this verse, and others do not. The manuscripts that lack it happen to be the majority and the oldest, And to textual critics, that is very significant. If you listen to our study of that section, we treated the passage without verse 37, and saw that the flow and sense of it lacks nothing in the absence of these words. Furthermore, the doctrinal content of verse 37 is well established in several other passages. We want to explore that for just a moment. Again, the verse reads, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So this verse takes the eunuch's question, What hinders me from being baptized literally and sincerely? In the absence of these words, the question is best understood as a rhetorical confession in its own right, that the eunuch agreed with Philip's sermon and earnestly wanted to respond in obedience as soon as he could. If the question was a sincere inquiry, Then, as McGarvey observed, the manuscripts that lack the verse offer no answer, but we may be sure that this was the answer given. In fact, there's good reason to believe that these words, or something very close to them, were spoken on the occasion, even if we are absolutely certain that this passage is not genuine to Acts. For Philip, to make believing with all your heart an essential prerequisite to baptism is in perfect keeping with the total testimony of Scripture on the matter. Mark 16, 15-20, which is essentially a miniature summary of the message of Acts, records Jesus giving the Great Commission in these words, "...he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned." The clear implication of this passage is that belief is the vital underpinning to efficacious baptism. It must precede baptism for baptism to be valid. In John three verses five through eight, when Jesus taught about the role of baptism in the new birth, he undeniably placed greater emphasis on the role of the Spirit, whose words produce faith in the heart of the hearer. Thus, one cannot be born of water without hearing and believing the words of the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter one and verse five, the Apostle Paul says that his apostolic mission was to the end of producing obedience to the faith among all nations for Jesus' name. This is essentially Paul's interpretation of the Great Commission. The expression, the obedience of faith, is noteworthy and interesting. Moses Lard offered this excellent explanation of it. The genitive pisteos, the word translated faith or belief in Romans 1.5, is a genitive of source or cause. The obedience springs out of the faith, or the belief, as its source or moving cause. Of course, the Apostle's call was not to induce obedience without the belief, nor the belief without the obedience. It was to induce both. But the one is arising from the other, belief first, then obedience is growing out of it. This was then, as it still is, the divine immutable order— No act of obedience is acceptable to God which is not prompted by belief in Him who performs it. Lard continued, For this reason, among others, infant baptism is to be rejected. It is not the obedience of belief, and thus wanting the very essence of acceptableness, it is no obedience at all. I believe this is sound reasoning and supported by the several examples of conversion in the book of Acts. Baptism always follows hearing the preaching of the gospel And as always, the response of those who receive the word. See Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And that's another way of describing faith. So we have no problem accepting the theology of Acts 8.37 regarding the necessity of believing with all one's heart as a prerequisite to baptism. The verse continues, And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This gives us insight into what a person was required to believe in order to become a Christian. That is, what we might rightly call the creed of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is no small point, and it has tremendous implications on concepts like justification and fellowship. First, we should note that this was certainly the confession or statement of faith required for fellowship with the Church of Christ in the Apostolic Age. In 1 Timothy 4.13, The Apostle Paul wrote, "...fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." So Paul, to encourage Timothy to remain loyal to Jesus Christ, reminded him of what he called the good confession, which he made before witnesses at the start of his career as a Christian. In the next verse, he explains that the good confession was the same thing Jesus said about himself before Pontius Pilate, which was that he was the Christ, John 18.37. So, that which was called by Christians the good confession, and was made before witnesses when one became a Christian, is precisely what Acts 8.37 puts in the mouth of the eunuch, just prior to his baptism. It was rightly called a confession— because the word confess means to say the same thing, or to speak something together with another. To say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is to say the same thing about Jesus that God the Father said about him at his baptism, and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew three seventeen and seventeen five. It is to say the same thing that Peter said about him, which brought him a blessing from Jesus and a place in his kingdom, Matthew 16, It is to say the same thing that all believers must say about him in order to be saved according to the word of faith, Romans 10, 8-10. It is to say the same thing that the angels of heaven said about him when he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father on high, Philippians 2, 9-11. This is the confession that brings God the Father, Jesus the Son, the holy angels, and all the redeemed together together into one solemn fraternity and fellowship, and that is well supported beyond Acts 8.37. Thus, we think McGarvey was right to say, the fact that it is interpolated did not prove that the eunuch did not make the confession. If this passage is an interpolation, it may be very easily accounted for. Very likely it began as a marginal note, inserted for one of two reasons. First, the scribe may have been perplexed by the historical blank if he took the eunuch's question non-rhetorically and wished to supply readers with a clear understanding of how Philip would have answered, which he based on the very well-known and well-established apostolic practice. The second possibility is that there was an oral tradition of the eunuch's conversion which likely was circulated among believers by Philip himself in which this part of the conversation was included. We do know that as early as 170 AD, a little more than 100 years after the book of Acts was written, the words of the eunuch in Acts 8.37 are ascribed to him by early Christian writers such as Irenaeus, and in the early 3rd century, Cyprian cites the words attributed to Philip as genuinely spoken by him on this occasion. This may mean there was a manuscript that included the 37th verse that these men had access to, or it may support the idea of an oral tradition. Its inclusion in the Western text should not be taken as much evidence for its support, because the Western text is considerably longer than the Alexandrian or majority text, and it seems to be severely embellished with a mixture of traditions which may be valuable and speculations which are not valuable. We're going to have more to say about the Confession in future study, but for now, we can summarize what we have learned about the issue of interpolations. Between us and the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God written down by the apostles and prophets are hundreds of years of uninspired human efforts in transmission, translation, typesetting, and printing. In all those human efforts, mistakes have been made, which must be overcome in our effort to access the perfect original, The thrilling truth, however, is that all of the mistakes can be fairly easily identified and overcome, and that no mistake, certainly none that was not quickly detected, was so serious or grievous as to adversely affect the faith of Christians. Textual criticism is a complicated science, and most of us, myself included, rely on the expertise and authority of others to explain the issues and how they are worked through and resolved. But the most important matter for us is to understand that by God's providence, His Word has remained accessible. The issues can be overcome and resolved, and the truth may be known, believed, and obeyed. God be praised. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit Tulsa When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, in the light of his word, word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Sheds on good will, all we do his is good will. will. He abides with us still. He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, trust, trust and obey, no other way. to trust and obey. to trust and obey.